Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 5th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The impounding last week of two British registered fishing trawlers and the application of the Probation Act to the two skippers for illegally fishing in Irish waters sparked strong reaction. Why Unionist ass was it necessary to deploy an Irish Navy warship with 76mm guns on board to impound the little boats from Kilkeel. There was undoubtedly embarrassment in the South, and particularly so because of the timing so close to Brexit. The Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, was asked about the incident, which he described as an anomaly in the law. Leo Varadkar will no doubt have been made aware that Arlene Foster continued with describing Irish waters as being policed by warships following that description earlier by the DUP Deputy Leader Nigel Dodds. The problem here is that there was a gentleman's agreement in place the voisinage agreement or neighbourhood agreement had been in place since 1964 and allowed fishing vessels reciprocal rights within six miles from the coast. The Supreme Court, however, struck down the agreement in 2016 saying it needed to be placed on a legislative basis. The proposed legislation was blocked in the Shannet in 2017. Let's hear why. Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash is with us. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. And you were instrumental in stopping the this law that was being proposed by the government at the time from going through. Yeah, this Supreme Court judgment um, was handed down in October 2016 and very hastily the Minister for Agriculture and Fisheries, Finnegales Michael Creed, decided that he was going to introduce legislation without any consultation with other members of the of the Oireachtas, without any consultation with the uh, fishing communities up and down this country that would be affected to give legal effect uh, give a legislative underpinning to uh, the practice that the Vosnage Agreement um, promoted uh, going way back to the 1960s. And as you point out mm-hmm. in your um, comprehensive introduction, Michael, uh, this was a gentleman's agreement, uh, a an agreement written really on the back of a cigarette box um, between um, two administrations to allow reciprocal fishing rights north and south. So, in other words, a fishing boat from Clarehead or Anagassan could go up to Kilkeel or Anilong to fish in the inshore, the zero to six nautical mile limit. And still um, can. And, well, no, they can't. And this is the point. Mm. Um, the Supreme Court uh, found very clearly mm. that there was no legal basis for the Vosnage Agreement. So, therefore, fishing in the inshore um, f- uh, uh, carried out by northern vessels in mm. uh, waters um, that are sovereign to the Republic of Ireland was in fact unlawful and the opposite uh, would be the case. Now my understanding is from speaking to local fishermen uh, and I had a very good meeting yesterday mm. with um, Clarehead fishermen uh, is that um, in very few cases, if any cases at all 
um, do uh, uh, fishermen from the uh, Republic actually fish uh, up in the north at this point in time. So the kind of bellicose language... But but they can, can't they, under the London Fisheries Convention? Well, the the inshore is a different matter entirely. Mm. The London Fisheries Convention, and I'm glad you asked me that question, as, as, as you would say, this needs to be looked through a number of different prisms. Um, my concerns uh, back in March 2017, when Michael Creed introduced this legislation, were many. And one of the concerns that I had was that the British government and the uh, then minister responsible minister, Michael Gove, mm. uh, expressed the intention that Britain would unilaterally remove itself from what's known as the London Convention. Now, the London Convention is a uh, protocol or an agreement mm-hmm. um, between a number of different states, including Ireland and the UK, uh, for access to fishing water 6 to 12 miles from the UK coast on other coastlines as well. So that's what the London Convention mm-hmm. relates to. Now, um, Which when allows, a country... But, but, but in practice, it allows Irish boats to fish north of the border, doesn't it? Uh, well, no. No, the Vossenage Agreement uh, was what covered that, not the London Convention. London right. Convention... Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the London Convention uh, dictates the situation pertaining to 6 to 12 miles. Mm. Okay, but uh, it was struck down by the Supreme Court the, here. The, the Vossenage Agreement was, yes, yes. The Vossenage Agreement was. Struck down by the Supreme Court here. That doesn't uh, apply in a different jurisdiction, though, that ruling, does it? Uh, no, but remember, this is about reciprocal rights. So mm. you would imagine, you would imagine that the administration governing the other jurisdiction would mm. take the same uh, view because the, 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 for an agreement mm. to work, it requires obviously the consent of okay. both consenting parties. Okay. So the, re- the reality has so been. You, you'd be happy then uh, if a little trawler from Clara Head was impounded by a British warship. It's not a case that w- w- of whether or not I'd be uh, happy uh, about the situation. The fact is that those arrangements are now uh, unlawful. Uh, and we haven't given legal well, effect to... But you'd be satisfied, to, would you? That that would be appropriate. No, I, I, I wouldn't be satisfied, but that's that's not the point. There's an understanding, yeah. and everybody is aware, mm. and from the best of my understanding, it has been the case since at least late 2016 that vessels from the Republic have not been fishing mm. in the inshore uh, in the north. And anyway, my point ne- is not necessarily pertaining to access for northern mm. vessels to waters the Irish uh, Republic of Ireland inshore. What I found in terms of the research I did and the consultations that I engaged in before I took a view on whether or not the Vossenage Agreement should be given legislative effect or not was actually who is fishing uh, in the Irish inshore. And what we found was quite startling. Um, The reality has been uh, over the last number of years that uh, a lot of the mussel beds, for example, around the uh, Republic of Ireland inshore, uh, and indeed the case could be made as well in relation to brown crab, in relation to razor clam, uh, have been sort of factory harvested by Dutch vessels using Northern Ireland flags of convenience. So we're not talking here about small-time operators mm-hmm. out of Kilkeel or Annalong or mm-hmm. anywhere else in the north. And, I mean, that was the impression, I think, that was given uh, through the me- media in terms ah, of well, reporting on the court's, court case last week. Mm, that the, the court what case last week saw two people from Kilkeel keel in front of the bench. Uh, that's right. That's yeah. right. It did. Yeah. It I did. mean, they weren't um, Dutch. And look, uh, my mm. understanding yeah. is that they're regular um, yeah. f- fishermen, people who, who fish regularly uh, in Republic of mm. Ireland. And Waters, I think Paddy Malone and, and of the Chamber of Commerce and Dundalk probably summarised how people felt about it on the programme yesterday. He was saying he was horrified by it. He said this was an Irish boat fishing in Irish waters, and that's the way he perceived it. Well, that's the way he that's the way he perceived mm. it. And, 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 and in many cases, it is a case that there are small f- mm. fishermen who have maybe historically uh, fished down here and the the opposite would be the case but the point about it is that actually and this is not nothing to do with Brexit or anything mm. else and you know the bellicose language from the DUP and others is quite mm. interesting but e- leaving all of that aside everybody knows that since late 2017 
this 2016, these mm-hmm. practices have been unlawful. So an effort was made by the government back in March 2017. I resisted that because we had no guarantees, for example, that um, that uh, the vessels that would be fishing down here would be simply Northern Ireland owned and managed vessels. Mm. Um, there's no definition um, necessarily um, that pertains to a Northern Ireland uh, registered vessel. Northern Ireland registered vessels are UK vessels, Michael. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we could have had an agreement given legislative effect in our national parliament that would have handed the Irish inshore to Scottish, English, Welsh and other um, uh, other other vessels as well. And there's been a long-standing practice, I mean, in, in, in fishing and I've seen it myself over the years where flags of convenience are used to pillage um, uh, stocks that uh, are at the point of depletion. Um, what we don't see either uh, in the legislation is any plan to manage the stocks, for example the crab mm. stocks, the, the mussel stocks. I got an email on Friday from um, uh, a fishing family in Wexford who uh, have had hardly anything to live on over the last few years because of the abuse of the mussel seed beds uh, down in Wexford because of the unregulated access uh, mm. to uh, uh, for vessels from other jurisdictions fishing uh, outside of Kilmore Quay uh, and so on. So, you know, the minister wanted just to introduce this legislation, ram it through the house. We stalled it because there was no pre-legislative mm. scrutiny whatsoever, no consultation, mm. no guarantees anyway that mm. the vessels that would be operating the Irish inshore would simply be small Northern Ireland owned vessels. Mm. So, there's more to this than meets the eye. Mind. Well, there is. And I had two unionist politicians on the programme last week and I was asking them uh, when they talked about warships, uh, police Irish waters was it colourful language or did they actually view it as a, an act of aggression and they said the latter Oh, well, that's unfortunate that they did but uh, on, on, you mm. know we have people like Nigel Dodds who's a trained barrister um, commenting on this he should have understood that what happened in fact was for all intents and purposes unlawful we want to have good relationships mm. with our neighbours but of course, of course Nigel Dodds understands but when you give politicians fuel they light the fire uh, and yeah, and of course, then, these heightened atmosphere, this heightened atmosphere in the context of Brexit. And by exactly. the way, this is absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. Mm. This is simply the enforcement of the law. As How it many times by the Irish over did you hear Brexit being mentioned and that this agency. was being directed by Brussels? Uh, and it really does nothing to help relationships. Well, that's does that's it? nonsense. And I mean, I do understand though that uh, the uh, Taoiseach, uh, in fact, it was reflected on uh, LMFM News on Friday, mm-hmm. did say that uh, he's anxious to uh, reintroduce that legislation to mm. the Shannon and that he's reached out to uh, Fianna Fáil to do some kind of a deal with them. I don't know what mm. that deal is, uh, but as it stands at the moment, I would not be supporting that legislation because uh, I don't believe that the flaws that we identified in the Shannon back in 2017 and the reasons for it being withdrawn back in May 2017 mm. have not been addressed. Um, I'll support our local fishermen. That's my priority, the people that I represent, and I have responsibility to articulate their mm. case and to make sure that they can make a living in a sustainable way. My concern isn't for the fishermen at Kilkeel or anywhere else. Okay, uh, and you would be satisfied, let's say, uh, to see more policing of the waters of this sort? Uh, well, the law needs to be enforced. Mm. Um, and uh, if an arrangement can be made that satisfies everybody, fine. Mm. But no uh, effort has been made to reach out to me. Uh, as one of the individuals, one of three individuals who um, proposed that this legislation should not go ahead. It's interesting that, um, well, let's see if there's a majority for this legislation in the Shannon because um, you know, Fianna followed a particular view, I think dictated by our view, expressed in the Shannon back in May and March 2017. And interestingly, um, immediately after the Supreme Court handed down this judgment, uh, Sinn Féin, 
uh, said uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very clear statement that legislation should be introduced to give effect to the Vosnage Agreement and then change their minds when mm-hmm. they come under pressure from fishermen in Donegal. Okay, briefly, let's talk about legislation that you introduced five years ago, I think, uh, and came into force yesterday relating to zero-air contracts. That's right, Michael. I'm very pleased that the legislation um, that has, in effect, outlawed uh, the use of zero-air contracts uh, has come into effect yesterday and credit to Minister Regina Doherty for sticking with that particular project uh, and ensuring that the legislation finally got over the line. Um, this legislation is groundbreaking. Um, it's a um, huge, huge change to uh, the um, you know, kind of certainty and security that people uh, expect to have in their workplace. I mean, for example, if um, one of the things, one of the really important things about this legislation is that um, you can now um, request that your employer places you in a band of hours that more accurately reflects uh, your working week. So no longer will we have a situation where somebody's contract, if you're working, for example, in a major retailer, yeah. your contract says 15, 15 hours a week. You work in 30, reality, you're working 30, 35 yeah, yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this gives much more um, legal certainty over people's hours and security over people's incomes. And that can only be a good thing for our country, for our society and for our economy. All right. I think there's uh, been a widespread welcome, although employers do seem to have uh, concerns about what they call unintended consequences arising from the legislation. Well, they resisted this from day one, and that's why it's taken five uh, years. Um, I don't think um, uh, this is a piece of legislation that a good employer should fear. Uh, it's only bad employers who decide to um, to um, employ people mm. on precarious contracts and to treat people like commodities. Um, that should be concerned about this. The majority of employers are, are good employers, treat their staff well and see them as assets for uh, their business. Uh, and The success of a business depends on the contribution that um, employees make. Uh, and I know most employee employers, of course, value uh, that contribution. Okay. So I think it's only mm-hmm. bad employers uh, who have anything to fear from this legislation. It's timely that it was introduced. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it was introduced. Uh, it's just a pity it's taken so long. All right. As you're with us, uh, perhaps uh, I can conclude by asking you about uh, a meeting of uh, the Joint Policing Committee, uh, which was the first such meeting since uh, the shooting at the M1 retail park in Drogheda last week. A volley of shots, it's believed up to five shots, uh, shot at one individual who was injured at least twice and underwent major surgery. And of course, there's been a lot of concern about that. Undoubtedly, it was a very heated meeting. Um, it was um, a frank meeting. Um, and uh, if 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 there was any unanimity at the m- meeting, it was around two things. One was praise for uh, the response of uh, the Garda Síochána locally, given the constraints on their numbers and the pressure uh, that they're experiencing. Of course, the chief superintendent outlined to the meeting that um, uh, the uh, division here is investigating you know, six ongoing mortar investigations, and they are labour-intensive and resource-heavy. Uh, and he was quite correct uh, in stating that it's his obligation to ensure that there's sufficient personnel to robustly investigate um, crimes of that nature. Um, the other uh, uh, piece of unanimity and consensus, I think, that emerged from the meeting was that uh, every single public representative in this area is united in demanding more resources from the Garda Commissioner and from the Minister for Justice uh, for our police force here in Drada to protect the people of Drada. All right. Thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning, Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM.
Now to using the internet safely and Minister Richard Bruton's intention to bring forward an online safety act which would see the establishment of an online safety commissioner. We're joined by Tanya Ward who's Chief Executive Officer of the Children's Rights Alliance. Good morning Tanya and morning. thanks for joining us. I know that you've welcomed this announcement but what's your understanding of how it'll work in practice? Well, as I understand it, the new Online Safety Act is to really deal with the fact that uh, social tech companies have been self-regulated for for the most part. Um, And it's going to deal with lots of different problems that children and young people have been dealing with on the online world. So I suppose one of them is in relation to uh, safety by design. At the moment, service providers, there's no obligation on, let's say, Facebook, Twitter, any of the other social media companies to think about the safety of um, users before they design their applications and their uh, different services. So you might remember about two years ago or three years ago, um, one particular app switched on its location services. And uh, location services, you know, show where you are at a given given point in time. But that actually raised lots of issues for children and families. So um, in some situations, uh, two parents were in conflict with each other and the other parent was able to find out where the child was. There were other situations where people were concerned that a child's location suddenly being switched on online meant that they could be um, prey for um, a predator. Um, So, you know, really what you want to do is impose on different service providers. If they're going to uh, design an app for children or young people or for anyone, they have to think about their safety when they're designing it. And that's one of the things that um, the Minister announced uh, uh, yesterday was that the actual, uh, that this legislation will impose a duty on service providers to uh, design their services in 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 a safe way. Right, uh, which may differ from person to person. Uh, As you said, if you're going to design one of these things for children or anyone, uh, because some of us uh, on occasion will want an app to be able to see our location. Uh, I mean, if you're driving and using Google Maps as a a way of navigating your route, uh, it's a wonderful tool. Absolutely. And so it really goes down to who's using it and why are they using it. Um, and I suppose what was happening for lots of children and young people, and it was really families just discovered this, they were on all the same uh, apps and uh, services mm. and suddenly their locations were switched on. Now, the best way to deal with that is when you're, you have a, a child user or a young person that's using a service is to switch them off by default basically operate on a default basis so um, and that, that really necessitates the service provider understanding the person using the service is a child or a young person I know in the UK they've actually done that they've actually introduced legislation that requires that requires a service provider when you have a child a young person using your service the privacy um, the privacy uh, switch yeah, is yeah, switched yeah, on yeah, yeah. so the child's information isn't viewable unless the child switches it on and the location is also switched off as well and the child has to actively go and switch it on for other people to see it. And how do you know that a a child is using the app uh, if the child claims uh, to be over 18? 
I mean, this, this, this is one of the big challenges, I mm. think, in terms of uh, online services, because um, we, there was a big debate around the digital age consent. But in one way, the digital age consent is kind of meaningless because a lot of the services are being accessed by children. They say that they're over 16, but actually they could be as young as 12 or, or 11. And in some cases, we know the service providers have a good sense that there's a child accessing their service. So I do think there's a real issue and the online safety people will say, you know, we have to get children to be honest about themselves online, about their behaviour online, but we also have to get service providers taking responsibility that they have children on their services um, and that they may not be the age that they say they are. Uh, And when it comes to whether it's safe to use one of uh, these apps or or not, is uh, that a, a subjective definition or an objective definition? Well, I mean, it's it's a really good question. I, I, I think what's going to be interesting about this legislation is the Minister is saying there's going to be an online safety uh, commissioner mm. and that commissioner will set down a code of practice um, and the, the commissioner will also be able to look at whether service providers are in line with that code of practice. So probably through that we should get some sense of what... Um, uh, of what online safety involves um, and what it, what it, what the standards should be, mm. uh, what what it, what should the service provider thinking about when they're thinking about the safety of a child and a young person? So I think that's really worthwhile um, because at the moment I suppose the online world it is fantastic for children. Yep. Third of global users are are, are are children, but it's also a bit of the wild west, mm. and children and parents are really being left on their own to navigate and deal with safety issues when actually the focus should be on making the online world a much safer place for children and young people to inhabit. Yeah, but uh, how do you police it if there's all these different opinions uh, and uh, there's uh, the prospect of a million and one complaints uh, and uh, who's going to provide uh, the people to look into the complaints and decide whether they're valid or or not? I mean, just as a a very simple example, Tanya, I suppose there's an awful lot of parents who would feel that children shouldn't be talking to strangers on the internet and children might think, no, I want to talk to strangers on the internet. I know, and I mean, and that's really something I think for a parent and child to be dealing with um, as well. You know, to work out whether they think it's appropriate, whether they should be talking to some a, a child, a, a stranger online, and and certainly the data is saying that children, about thirds of children, will be communicating with people for the first time online. So I think the way we get to know each other is actually quite different. Um, but I suppose the key here is is empowering a child or a young person to realise the danger of talking to someone online for the first time and the fact that the person you're talking to might, might be who you actually are talking to as well. Mm. So this really comes down to that parent-child relationship and educating a child to, to, to keep themselves safe in this kind of world. I mean, the commissioner is, isn't going to be able to deal with those kind of issues, but it's more going to be like, let's say, um, uh, last, last summer you had dispatches about, uh, there was a program about Facebook yeah. and there was a few different things that came up. So one of them was um, the moderators didn't take down uh, a racist content or racist language. Mm-hmm. Uh, in another circumstance, there was a young person who was assaulted by another young person and the moderators didn't take it down. Well, under this new legislation, the proposal would be, um, and there's quite a bit of detail on this from the Law Reform Commission, is that you know you make a complaint to Facebook, let's say in this case, Facebook don't take it down, then you can go to your online safety commissioner and he or she can issue an order to Facebook to take it down. Facebook don't take it down, 
then the, the commissioner can then go to the courts to get it taken down. And one of the things that came out strongly, I think, yesterday was Ireland is obviously looking very closely to the Australian example. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, there was 100% compliance with what the commissioner wanted. So it is interesting that there's some good examples where companies do comply with, with one of these bodies when, when, when they are up and running. And I think that's, that's very positive for the future. Uh, and if it is to be successful, will it come down to resources? Because when you talk about uh, the commissioner, you're you're not talking about an individual, you're talking about the Office of the Commissioner and uh, the staff that will be working on behalf of uh, the Commissioner and uh, generally the resources that are, are given to them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, resources are going to be key with um, with operating a body like this. But I suppose because we have so so many of the big tech companies in Ireland, um, and this will be one of the first times actually in Europe that uh, a digital, an online safety commissioner will be introduced, it's, number one, it's going to be very important that Ireland gets the legislation right because other countries will be looking to it. But number two, Ireland will have to make sure it's well, it's well staffed uh, and it has enough resources to do its job. And you see a big change in Ireland with, let's say, the Data Protection Commissioner because when that body was first established, it was, you know, the small office. It was mm. above a spar shop. Really? Now it's quite a big office, okay. um, yeah. and it's got lots of different people and resources in it. So it makes a big difference if the, an office like this is, is well resourced. I think the other thing as well that's that's important about this legislation is they say they're going to tackle harmful communications. Um, this was one of the things when children, young people are are are, are consulted on on, the, on these issues. The thing that they name most uh, that they they find most harmful to them is cyberbullying and cyber harassment. So this legislation is going to uh, going to deal to trying to tackle it, but it's also going to try and define it, which is going to be difficult enough because obviously. Um, you're dealing, you, have, you have a right to freedom of expression and communication. Yeah. But I think we have to get to grips with it because it is impacting on too many childhoods and too many teenage, um, teenagers. The other thing uh, they're talking about as well is dealing with um, harmful communications around promoting suicide, self-harm. Mm. Now, less young people would be exposed to that, but there would be a small cohort of impressionable, vulnerable young people who do get exposed to that. And so it's really important that those kind of communications are actually addressed as well. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you as always. Tanya Ward is Chief Executive of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, in New Zealand, people who've been banned from driving can apply for special permission to drive to work whilst they're disqualified if they can prove that the prohibition on them driving is causing them extreme hardship and preventing them from earning a living. The Junior Minister for Transport, Brendan Griffin, was asked about this in the Sunday Business Post just gone and said that he's asked officials here to come back to him on it and he's happy to consider and look at proposals. Proposals which have been brought forward in line with what's happening in New Zealand by the Vintners in Kerry. Uh, and indeed on foot of a parliamentary question from the independent TD, Michael Healy-Ray, uh, which believes uh, there could be a case in some circumstances for people to be allowed to drive to work. Michael Healy-Ray joins us now. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, I take it uh, you've been taking a, a lot of flack over this. Well, I suppose no more than I would expect or not expect, Michael. Uh, last December, on the 11th of December, uh, previous to that, I had attended uh, Vincer's uh, association meeting. And over the years, I have brought forward a lot of different issues on behalf of the Kerry Vintners. 
and the Vintners Association of Ireland. I believe our Vintners um, create a lot of local employment. They're an integral part of a very important hub uh, in our country. Uh, I would remind people there is nothing wrong with selling alcohol and uh, having a place where alcohol is consumed. Uh, it is not illegal to drink yet in this country. And uh, I believe our pubs play an awful uh, important role uh, in social interaction. They've been a great place for neighbours to meet over the years and have debates. And that's why I have always supported the Vinters. They create local employment. And uh, I believe they're very important in our society. Um, what has uh, transpired, especially in light of the new uh, legis- legislation that has mm. been brought forward by this government and the people who support it, uh, is the fact that a rural Ireland has been getting a hammering, not just this year, but over the last number of years. And uh, local pubs are closing down and people's um, socialising habits have completely changed. Yeah, we are now doing a thing that they were not doing in the past, and that is bagging in the morning. So very responsible people who would get taxis home at night and uh, be very mindful of what they would do at night time are now finding themselves in the position of um, being afraid to drive mm. their cars in the morning if they're after having a couple of drinks the night before. So what's so, the logic of the Vintner's argument here? Is it that whilst this law is in place, you don't need to worry about it. You can go out and drink tonight and get up in the morning and drive and not worry whether you're over the alcohol limit because if you're found to be over the limit, uh, you will be uh, convicted, you will lose your licence, but you'll be given special permission to drive. It, it won't uh, mean you're going to lose your job. Well, I'll explain to Michael and to listeners what happens in other countries. In Australia, in many of the states in America, uh, when a judge is sentencing a person and when their licence is being revoked and taken away from them, if a case is made, uh, and I actually found out a lot more about this recently, to be perfectly honest with you, Michael, um, I, at the beginning, I thought it was just a permit strictly. For instance, in Michael Reed's case, that you could leave your home and go to your place of work mm. uh, and, and that you would have a permit to do that. But believe it or not, and your listeners might find this unusual to hear this, um, in America, uh, people get permits to drive children to school. They get uh, permits to drive children to college, hospital appointments. Uh, it's actually amazing the way the rules are implemented in other in other parts of the world. So if you're caught drink driving there, you're not put off the road. You, you technically speaking, you are, mm. but you but you can make a case if you feel that in your life you need a license for A, B, C, or D. It sounds you as though you can make the case for A, B, C, D, and absolutely everything except going to the pub. I, 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 I know, but look, all I'm doing is really. Yeah. This, mm. when, when your listeners will hear of this, many of them, it might be the first time they ever heard of such a thing. Be, why do I say that? Because I know that while I was aware of, of the permits for going to work, I didn't realise that in many parts of the world it's ex- extended for many other purposes. Mm. Uh, now, people who would be critical of this will say, for God's sake, sure, where's the deterrent at all? Yeah, there's because no penalty. Exactly. You could say, well, I don't have a, a driver's licence. I have half a driver's licence, mm. or I have a quarter of a driver's licence. Mm. So I, I, many people would say that it would be uh, very hard to implement with tracking devices and things like that. You, other people could make another argument. But one thing that has transpired 
thanks to people like yourself, right? Since, uh, even though I put down this parliamentary question on the 11th of December, and uh, I gave it to Justice and the Department of Transport, and it has been in the melting pot uh, since then, and I got different responses. Uh, no, I, I'd be the first person to admit to you, none of them what I would call positive, right? Mm-hmm. Other than that government was going located. Now, the junior minister uh, came out at the weekend and said that uh, he was very glad the government were located, but he certainly got a rebuke uh, last night because his senior minister, uh, Minister Shane Ross, issued uh, a letter which he gave exclusively to the Tonight Show, which was read out in the Tonight Show last night, and which clearly stated that he was not going to entertain any such permits and that the legislation, as it, as it is, it was not going to be amended in any way to allow judges have discretion. Because at present, the judges that, that, that are administering um, fines and the removal of people's licenses, they don't, from a legislative point of view, they don't have that discretion available to them. And what I was putting forward on behalf of the Vinters was, look, look at this, debate it, see what you think. And uh, the minister has come back and said, no. So uh, that's where we are with this, unless it changes, unless something else happens. Yeah. Uh, that, that is the way this is being looked on right now. But if there is no deterrent, uh, well then, why would you bother uh, getting a, a taxi or not driving the morning after or whatever it is? Uh, because uh, that deterrent of being taken off the road stops drink driving, doesn't it? Well, I suppose the first thing that we'd want to always say, Michael, on a show like this is, number one, we're very conscious of what happens as a result of people drinking and driving to excess and being involved in accidents. One thing that I wouldn't like to happen, though, however, is there seems to be an impression uh, out there that every road traffic accident that occurs, the drink is involved. Nothing could actually be further from the truth. The amount of accidents that happen that are actually drink-related are that the people involved in those accidents are after having consumed alcohol is minimal. But the impression seems to be given a lot of time by, by certain sectors of society, by certain people in the media, you would swear that every time a person tips a car off something, that, oh, they must be drunk or under the influence of alcohol. That is not true. Another fact, Michael, which is very sad and very unfortunate, the majority of, of accidents where people lose their lives, the people who lose their lives are not actually in motor cars at all. They're pedestrians. There are people on bicycles, people who are perfectly entitled and rightfully so mm. uh, to use our roads. It's great to see people cycling. It's a fine, healthy thing for people to do. Or if people want to use it as their method mm. of transport, uh, if, if they can. And uh, it's so sad. We've even had an incident recently again in Kerry where a person sadly lost their life, a pedestrian. So but that doesn't make it any less dangerous to drink and drive, does it? Oh, not at all, but mm. that's the whole point. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that, Michael. Mm. I'm just highlighting the facts. And people quote facts an awful lot mm. on programmes like this. Sure, but, but because it is dangerous to drink and drive, and I'm sure you accept that, shouldn't be yes. people encouraged not to drink and drive? Uh, and uh, a carrot and sticker approach, if you like, encouraged on one hand and told that if you do drink and drive, you'll be off the road. Yes, but but then the other argument of this is you have to remember that when a person loses their licence, there are what I would call uh, the 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 other people who will be uh, adversely affected. For mm. instance, the children of that person, if that person loses their job... That's the consequence of your action, though, is it not? It, it is, 
and I agree with you. But but what I said, if if you go back to the original statement mm-hmm. that I made on the 11th of December, what I wanted was this matter to be debated. I am very extremely thankful to you and to other your colleagues in this industry, in the media industry, where they have debated it and. While there may be many people listening to your show this morning that will say, my God, that's the maddest idea I ever had in my life. I accept them saying that, and I think that's good and healthy. Then there will be people who are saying, well, you know, there's an awful lot to be said for this. If you're living in, in, in particularly in rural Ireland, where you don't have buses, trams, trains, or any other type of transport, and if you are put off the road, and if your place of employment is five or ten miles away, that yes, what would be wrong with giving that person? A okay, chance? well, I'm sure it's people no will. Harm to put it out there, and one thing that I don't have, Michael, I have no monopoly on being right. All right, I'm well, putting it out there as a suggestion to be looked at. I'm sure people will let us know what they think of it. We leave yes. it there for the moment, though, and thank you as always for joining us, Independent TD in Kerry, Michael Healy Ray. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. An email from Marie in relation to your interview at the top of the programme with Senator Nash. Good morning, Michael. The discussion about the arrest of two boats by the Naval Service in Dundalk Bay and the response by Nigel Dodds makes me laugh. It also brings back memories of enjoying a day's scuba diving in Carlingford Lock in our own waters and being stopped, boarded and questioned and having to give our names, addresses and the reason we were there to the British Navy who patrolled the lock in their warship in inverted commas. The only regret I have is that I gave my details. I would have no fear now and gladly suffer the consequences. Okay. So thanks, Marie, mm, for, memory, for that. A memory of uh, days gone by. Let's hope uh, they're not days ahead of us. On the zero hour contracts, uh, I wouldn't be a supporter of of Gerald Nash, uh, says Declan, but you have to give him credit for spearheading this end of zero hour contracts. Too many people, I feel, are being taken advantage of by employers. Uh, not been given enough hours and this is definitely a positive development. Matt from Drogheda, we just heard Jed's party political broadcast. Will all the parties get the same space? Uh, Joanne wants to know, will the new zero contracts law, does that mean that employers now have to guarantee you a certain number of hours a week? I'm just wondering. Uh, no, uh, I, I, I don't think so. Um, but uh, just uh, going back to the party political broadcast, uh, yes, I think is the answer. All of the parties will uh, be treated equally. Uh, I, I presume uh, that uh, the comment is made in relation to what Senator Nash had to say about zero-hour contracts, uh, which was legislation that he brought forward, uh, which has uh, been welcomed, uh, I, think, uh, I think, across the political divide brought in uh, this week uh, by the Fine Gael Minister Regina Doherty uh, and welcomed by many of uh, the trade unions. Uh, there has been uh, some concern by employers' groups uh, but I'm not sure that you could refer to it as a, a party political broadcast. I think uh, as I say, most politicians have welcomed the introduction of that legislation uh, and uh, Senator Nash was asked about it this morning because he was uh, the person who introduced it. Okay. 
on to online safety then a couple of comments in relation to that interview Anya thinks it's great that the government is taking steps to appoint an online safety commissioner it's an appointment uh, she feels that's long overdue in her opinion children seem to be able to access an alarmingly large amount of unsuitable material online and the current safeguards are not doing enough to stop it we need tougher rules and legislation to keep our children safe online and ensure they aren't exposed to anything that will damage them or put Mm. them at risk I'm not sure that this act will go that far but uh, time will tell Agronia from Drogheda, uh, listening to your interview, it seems that up to now there's been no control over what has been put up online in this country. I hope this is not just talk, Michael, by the government and we actually see action. Mm. Liz from Navin, the online safety commissioner, whoever he or she will be, will have their work cut out for them, I feel, because it seems to be a free-for-all on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amory says, it's not just about parents using common sense when it comes to the children and the internet. They need to talk to their children, monitor what they're doing, ensure that they don't have unlimited, unsupervised access at too young of an age. I'm just wondering, Michael, if parents were more vigilant, would we have as many problems? No. Uh, And the answer to the first question is, yes, it is just uh, about uh, parents uh, making sure that their children are acting safely. And no, it's not. Uh, and the reason I, I say that is because I think there's an awful lot of, of parents uh, who would like to, parents who try. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the technology is such and it moves so quickly and yeah. develops so quickly that a lot of parents can't keep up with it and they don't know what's going on. And when your child has a, a phone, it's very hard not to allow a child to have a, a phone these days. They have access uh, to the World Wide Web and whatever is on it and what they're doing and when they're doing it uh, is almost impossible for parents to know about. Anne is hoping that bullying online is tackled by this new commissioner says the children's lives be made misery every day because of horrible nasty comments. I'm hoping that this will be stamped out as part of all of this. Mm-hmm. Moving then to your interview with uh, Deputy Michael Healy. We've had quite a few comments in relation okay. to that. Probably mm. not surprising. Mm. Linda says when someone breaks the law then they have to pay the price. Surely that's what the law is there for. Isn't it? It's like saying to a convicted drunk driver you can't drive for three years but hey it's okay to drive to work. Mm. Well that's exactly what it's saying. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> it's not like saying that. That is what <laughs> is being suggested. Yeah. Mary mm. thinks that giving mm. people special permission to drive to work after a drink driving ban is a complete joke. So where is the deterrent in that? So you get caught drink driving and endangering others. But if you can make a case for needing your license for work, you get to keep it. What a load of rubbish. So how do you prove that person will only use the car to drive to work? You can't. It's as simple as that. So what's being... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
proposed is basically allowing people to drink and drive and get away with it. Michael Healy Ray should be ashamed of himself for proposing this. Mm. Tom thinks the suggestion of allowing banned drink drivers back behind the wheel to get to work is ridiculous. How are the Gardaí supposed to police that? It's impossible to monitor. Even looking and discussing these proposals is making a mockery of the current drink driving laws. Okay, well, I think a lot of people have been upset uh, by the proposal. Why should the same rule apply? Different point of view mm. here for somebody who's just slightly over the limit and someone who is way over the limit, Michael. I think there should be different penalties and maybe not everybody should be banned. It's very harsh that you could lose your licence uh, and perhaps your job if you only are just over the limit mm. instead of being way over the limit. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to know the day after when it's safe to drive. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are different penalties. Uh, if you're found to be over the limit at all, uh, um, you're automatically disqualified yes. uh, for three months. Uh, but I mean, uh, obviously, uh, depending on how much you're over the limit, uh, a judge could disqualify you for life or 10 years. We often hear of uh, rulings like that. Sean thinks that everything is over the top in this country nowadays, that each each case should be treated separately. Do not condone someone who knocks back five or six pints and getting into a car straight after and driving. But I do have sympathy for someone the next day who was just over the limit after drinking the night before. Mm, yeah. Well, it comes back to that 50 to 80 milligrams limit, uh, which uh, will result in that disqualification of three months. If you're over 80, the rules change. Deirdre and Kel says if people go out and have a drink and then get a taxi home, they are behaving sensibly. It's very hard to know the next day if they are still over the limit. I do agree, uh, you know, of having mm. tough drink driving laws, but I also accept that the next day it can be hard for very for people to know when it is safe to drive. Okay. Uh, Eileen says that most people watch what they drink because they fear losing their licence and not having their car for work and thinks that if an exemption was put into place, more people will be willing to take a chance to get behind the wheel. That's what she feels. Mm -hmm. A texter says, it's time to bring in tough laws. Uh, They should be banned for life. Get the killers off the roads. Okay, I'm sure there's a lot of people agree with that as well. Okay, if I time for one or two mm-hmm. more, uh, just in relation to, we were talking yesterday about this proposal uh, in relation to uh, banning religious symbols. Uh, Tom Tony for me says uh, it's totally wrong. Uh, he feels to remove religious objects from hospitals and says that if we went to another country, would they make changes to suit us? Uh, Sheila also contacted us on the same topic and she feels that those people proposing uh, to remove religious objects from hospitals have evil running through them and she says she says what they need is prayer we shouldn't give in to this pe- these people i just pray for them Okay, that's lovely. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, uh, the UK's Brexit Secretary and uh, the Attorney General are meeting with Michel Barnier in uh, Brussels uh, for more talks about uh, the backstop which has uh, proved uh, to be the main obstacle for MPs agreeing to Theresa May's uh, deal. Let's uh, talk about what's going to happen when the votes take place next week with Luke Ming Flanagan who is an MP for the Midlands North West constituency. Good morning to you.
you and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme. Thank you, Michael, and thanks for inviting us on. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, it, it seems as though Ireland and Europe is going to stand firm and there will not be uh, this option uh, for uh, unilateral withdrawal from the backstop agreement. Uh, but it, it seems uh, uh, at this stage as though there may be agreement on an arbitration process which might give Mrs May a get-out-of-jail card. Yeah, but look, at uh, ultimately, uh, as many people have said, if there is a get-out clause on the backstop, then it's not a backstop. And whatever sort of arbitration process takes place, uh, I would suggest it is more for optics and to help uh, Theresa May uh, sell pretty much the same deal. And I think uh, if that's what it takes, then uh, that would be a good idea because uh, it's not ideal, uh, the agreement that has been stuck, struck between the Conservative government and the European Commission. But uh, we can complain about it all we want. And some people can say it could have been better. Uh, but the reality is, I don't think anyone has any better ideas. So if uh, we have an arbitration process, call it what you want. If that makes it easier uh, for her to sell this deal, then we should go for it. And uh, as well as that, uh, what I would be saying to people who supported Brexit and MPs who supported Brexit, uh, I think they're being absolutely stupid in not actually supporting this deal. Now, look, they don't get absolutely everything they want. I know they have this fear that the backstop will go on forever and we'll never find technical solutions. But uh, I think uh, it's starting to become a little bit clearer to those people, people like Rhys Mogg and people in the European not very well researched group or the European research group that uh, any chance of Brexit potentially it could not happen at all I think maybe might waken them up to supporting uh, what Theresa May has got because Mm. there is no better deal there is no better option Okay, but we are in trouble to some degree never since uh, the Second World War has Europe been as essential yet never has Europe been in so much danger if I may quote the French President Emmanuel Macron who has made a remarkable intervention in that he's written to the people, the citizens of Europe through newspapers across Europe in the languages of each of the 28 European states. And he says that Brexit stands as the symbol of that danger. It symbolises the crisis of Europe which has failed to respond to its people's needs for protection from the major shocks of the modern world. It also symbolises the European trap. The trap is not being part of the European Union. The trap is in the lie and the irresponsibility that can destroy it. Who told the British people the truth about their post-Brexit future? Uh, And he's very critical of the Brexiteers uh, and falls short of saying that they lied to the people of the United Kingdom. Well, look, at at a very, very sensitive time, it's the kind of, a lot of what he said, it might be hard to argue with it, but you'd have to ask, at this stage in the process, how exactly does it help? Because no more than 
bringing in something that can help Theresa May drag this across the line because we need her to do it. Uh, you need to get absolutely everything right. And I wonder why how making statements like that helps. But there is something in his statement that is very interesting. And it's interesting from the point of view of because Brexit is going on, and obviously it's the mm. biggest thing affecting us, we are not talking about an awful lot of other stuff that is going on in the European Union, that they're driving forward with. Mm. And what I'm talking about is Mr. Macron, Emmanuel Macron, or President Macron, yes. talking about defending Europe. It's remarkable. And, mm. and how, we need to, how we need to do that. Yeah. But the problem is, we're actually going down that road at the moment because of Brexit, without a debate on this. And we are looking at a situation in, we all talk about the budget in Ireland, we all have big discussions about it. There's a thing called the multi-financial framework here, where we are deciding how the money will be spent uh, over a seven-year period from 2020 onwards. And in those proposals, there is a proposal to increase defence spending by 22 times what it currently is, Mm. up to 13 billion. And this money has to come from somewhere and we are going to see a cost to common agricultural policy payments, rural development uh, payments as a result of this. So while I, I found his letter interesting, yep. I think the thing that stands out the most is his statement on defence. And I think this is significant for Ireland. And maybe I, I can read a little Ireland bit of that for... Gone. Maybe I can read a little bit of it for our, our listeners. They can read the letter themselves in uh, the Irish Times today, but he, he talks about rethinking the Schengen area and he, he says we will need a common border force and a European asylum office, strict control obligations and European solidarity to which each country will contribute under the authority of a European Council for Internal Security. Uh, and he talks about the issue of migration uh, in terms of protecting borders as well. But when he talks about a common border force, is he talking about a European army? Well, he's talking about something that is there already, but uh, the idea that we would see them on the border, uh, an organisation called Frontex, would be absolutely horrific to me. But they are currently on about increasing spending for that. And I wouldn't go along with it because, uh, okay, I have spent a lot of time in Belgium. I've spent a lot of time in France. And obviously, I passed through Luxembourg and Germany over the last few years. And one thing I have noticed is soldiers on the streets carrying machine guns. In fact, the school that my children went to for the first year and a half that they were over here, they're back at home now, lucky for them, uh, they had soldiers with machine guns on the gates of their schools. Mm. So I look at the situation now in Ireland where my children go to school and the very idea that that would be happening would be just horrific, the thoughts of it. But the reason why it isn't happening and the reason why we don't see soldiers on the streets, of course, unless you're talking about bank money being driven around, is because we now live in an Ireland that has seen peace, some people would say, for the first time in six, seven hundred or eight hundred years. And the idea that in the current environment, I know they have problems in Europe, I know they have problems with terrorism, etc. But the idea that we would throw funding in this direction at the moment to me is ridiculous and we've also signed up to a thing called PESCO yeah. which is the permanent permanent structured cooperation of nearly all the defence forces and armies in the European 
Union. And if we follow what we're meant to do on that and go to 2% of GDP in spending on defence, we're potentially looking at, and I keep looking at the figure and going, have I got it right? But I've checked it on numerous occasions. We're looking at an increase of 5,000 million euros in spending on defence in Ireland every year. And while the Brexit debate is massive, I would say one of the biggest downsides to it is all of this stuff is now going on in the background. And thank you for letting me mention it. But there is no space in the media to discuss what is also happening in Europe, which will have obviously Brexit is going to affect us Mm -hmm. financially massively. But obviously, if we have to spend five billion euros more on defence, if we see a switch from common agricultural policy funding to defence funding, as is suggested in the MSS, then when it comes to financial effects of issues that are taking place at the moment, we need to be discussing this as well. And that's why I would like, for many reasons, to see an agreement uh, on Brexit sooner rather than later, other than for the obvious reasons uh, to bring uh, confidence to business, etc., and to take away worries for many people about what might happen, but also so we can discuss what is actually going on in the European Union. Because actually, Brexit probably, you could argue, could have taken place uh, in one way because there never really was much detailed discussion on what happened in the European Union. And I'm not just saying this to lick up to you. That cannot be said about your radio station. You had two debates during the European election. No one else did. You drilled down into the facts. You put us against the wall and made sure we knew what we were on about. But we don't see that in other places. And as a result, you have a situation where people are sceptical about Europe. And I'll give you one example. Mm. Turf cutters, because of the European Union, when in fact, and it probably doesn't suit me to say this, the problem started in Ireland. And not talking about this in 1992 when we should have been in the first place. So we are at this position, I think, because we don't talk about the European Union enough in the first place. Okay, and, and there's as a many. To Brexit, we ain't talking about these big things either. All right, there are many different opinions, and indeed, Mr. Macron does talk about uh, the increase in spending on defence, but he would see that as very much a positive. He also talks about sovereignty, uh, and he, he talks uh, about isolationist sovereignty of the nationalists, and that that is an illusion, and that we have to look at what he calls collective sovereignty. In other words, European unity. And he he talks about this in relation to defence and standing up to aggressive policies from countries like China, Russia and the US. And he talks about peace and something he says that that he, he strived for all his life on behalf of France and the rest of Europe is peace. And he says, we've shown that what we were told was unattainable, the creation of a European defence capability. This is kind of scary stuff, isn't it? Well, do you know what? Uh, It it certainly is uh, scary, all right. But what's even more scary is the fact that while he's saying all of this, he's still selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. And in the Aachen Treaty, which was signed between Germany and France on defence, where they decided to work together, it nearly fell down on the point that 
Angela Merkel, who had stopped sales to Saudi Arabia, wanted France to do it also, but France didn't want to do it because it's making money out of it. And if you're serious about peace and you want to be a leader on peace and you want to talk about it and be taken seriously, well then... You can't talk on one hand about peace and then on the other hand send we- sell weapons to Saudi Arabia which they are using in Yemen and they are killing men, women and children. Children like my children. My four-year-old daughter, if she was living in Yemen now, the man who talks about peace is selling weapons there to blow her head off. And I use those words because we need to put ourselves in that position and how we would feel if someone like Emmanuel Macron was talking about peace, and on the other hand, your children were dying because of these policies, he is a bloody hypocrite, and he's at the level in the polls in France that he is for a reason. People have seen through him. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, perhaps uh, there is some truth in the direction that Europe is going in. Indeed, uh, we were talking uh, with Maureen O'Sullivan, Independent TD, last week about Ireland signing up uh, to another aspect of European defence, uh, an element uh, which uh, former Count Corla Fine Gael TD and former Minister for Defence Sean Barrett described... Yep, he described it as attempting to join the big boys in a creepy, crawly, step-by-step way and joining a European army. Well, uh, we have in my office done lots of freedom of information requests on this. And we have unearthed a statement from our country which says that it would enhance our credibility to go down this road. Now, the question you've got to ask is, who is it enhancing credibility with? Is it enhancing credibility with the countries that had interventionist wars from many of these European states in the last few years and have caused mayhem in Libya and have caused mayhem in Iraq? Is it, uh, like, how on earth is that a good idea? How does that help our credibility? Because I tell you one thing Mm. I have noticed, and other people have noticed it with me from other countries, Because I am Irish, every last customs thing that I walk up to and every time I show my passport, I am met with a smile and a chat and, oh, you are Irish and, oh, you're going to Dublin and we love you. And that is not, whether it's right or not, that is not the experience of every country. And when it comes to enhancing our credibility, I think the best way we can enhance our credibility is to remain neutral. In fact, get even more neutral. Get mm. the U.S. planes out of Shannon. But maybe collective, maybe yes. collective, maybe that collective sovereignty that Mr. Macron is speaking about is collective sovereignty on the Brexit line and collective sovereignty on the front line. Well, uh, we, we'll see whether there is collective sovereignty on Brexit. We have had it, you could say, up until now, but it hasn't cost them a single cent or a single penny so far. Okay. While at the same time, when they were show, supposedly showing solidarity to us, last year we borrowed three and a half thousand million euros in 500 million euro lots as a result of our bank debt. And where is that money now? There was a line drawn through it. It no longer exists. It has been burnt. So when it comes to solidarity, what I would say to the European Union, and you know what? I might believe in them if they did this. Mm -hmm. If you're serious about solidarity, in the case of a no-deal Brexit, I believe there's in the region 
can have 11 billion euros still on the central bank, in the central bank, which we are expected to go out and borrow and burn. Well, if there's true solidarity, they've got to call a halt to that. Because we are borrowing and burning, and this has been Mm -hmm. played out many times, but the reality doesn't change, to bail out two non-systemic banks in an illegal fashion by the ECB. So if there is real solidarity there, well, then they should tell us we no longer have to do that. But one further point, on him talking about nationalism, I am a localist, not a nationalist. And I'm not a nationalist at an EU level either, going around like Emmanuel Macron talking about doing things the European way. That is also nationalism. I am a localist because of experience on my council. And because I think more power should be made local as possible. But what we're doing is we're pushing power further and further away. We should stick to what works in the European Union, feeding ourselves, trying to do something about climate change and do something about plastics pollution. And forget about fighting and buying weapons for a country that has seen peace for the first time in centuries. Okay, I've got to leave there. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us this morning. Luke Ming Flanagan, an independent MEP. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's talk about politicians keeping fit. Uh, we've uh, one of the fittest politicians in uh, the country in studio with us uh, this morning, at least I imagine that's uh, the case. Uh, that's independent TD for Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick. Uh, thanks for coming into us. I'm not sure if you jogged in this morning or <laughs> what mode of transport you took. Uh, but uh, you don't use uh, the gym and the doll too much, do you? Well, Michael, uh, there's, there's a fantastic facility in the doll there. There's, uh, there's running machines, there's road machines, there's bicycles and that there. But uh, over the, la- over the last uh, eight years as a TD, I might maybe use the gym maybe once a week or once a fortnight. Or, and that. That's all, all depends on the weather. Mm. Uh, like, like as I said, it's a lifestyle choice. Uh, in, in the doll, uh, I've been contacted by many many's of TDs and centres mm. because uh, I have a name of being a fitness fanatic, right? Mm-hmm. And it, that's that's my lifestyle choice. Like, if you, if you look at the gym there and the statistics in, in the gym there is, I think about two-thirds of the people that use the gym use the gym between half past 12 and 3 o'clock. It's normally around the lunchtime. Mm-hmm. Now, if you walk through the door between them times, you either see people in the smoking area, you see people in restaurants, you see people in, in, in the pub on the bars and that there. Oh, you see people right. go and walk. Smoking so, and drinking. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but I'm just going to say, it's a lifestyle choice. And in fairness, uh, as I said, yeah, I see, I, I see people mm. in the doll that walk around they can't get their bread uh, mm-hmm. I see people in the doll that's mm. actually sweating I see mm. like, as you do everywhere yeah, I suppose but people yeah. don't realise mm-hmm. uh, like I was the rapporteur in, in the, in the Rockets Health Committee for five years and mm. my big concern was, was obesity and the signs of obesity and in fairness over the last, over the last eight years I've given an awful lot of uh, people in the doll ministers and junior ministers and TDs and centres a bit of advice of, of, of the knowledge that I have over the last number of years and, and in fairness it had worked mm. uh, one particular minister uh, before he became minister was sitting beside me and he said to me one day, uh, he's a serious pain in his back, and he said to me, listen, please tell me the truth, how do we get rid of it? And I said, your, your main problem is your front. In other words, he was three or four stone overweight. Right. So, yeah. ba- mm-hmm. so basically, I gave him a few simple exercises, like walking, going over to the gym, doing a bit of walk and exercise. Mm. And in, 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 in a period of 12 months, the problem I find with people is, when people think they're overweight, all they want is to lose the weight 
straight away. Mm. Like, you know, it took so long to put the weight on and it's going to take so long to take it off. That if you're gradually over, over, over months or whatever it is, maybe lose maybe a pen a week or two pen a week and go on a diet. Like, mm. people just think running, you're going to lose weight. You have to do a diet. And in fairness, this, this, this minister now at the moment lost over three stone. Well, and, 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 okay. the dip, and the mm. pain went away in his back. As I said, it's a lifestyle. Mm. It's, it, it's, it's a facility that's there and, it's a, facility, and it's, it's, it's a facility that people shouldn't be ashamed to use. Okay, and it's not just about fitting into your trousers uh, and looking well it's about getting the insides the heart moving and all that sort of thing the reason though that we're asking you about this today is because the Irish Mirror reported that the gym costs in around 50,000 euro a year to upkeep uh, but just one politician a day on average uh, on average uses the gym well, Michael, as I said, it's a lifestyle uh, choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go, I said, I go to the gym roughly about once a week. Uh, in fairness, when I do go to the gym, it's always either the same TDs or the same centers as users. Or the same TD, is it? <laughs> no, same TDs. Not t- like Michael, I'm going to be honest. Mm-hmm. Here. I come on your program this morning, mm-hmm. and I know mm-hmm. a lot of people right there, and I'm probably laughing. I am not ashamed to say that I like to look after myself. And, I, and as I said, yeah, uh, I went and I done that uh, melod body test that, that Leo Varaco done. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, Leo Varaco is a forty year old man. Mm. And the next thing he's got, a, he's a body of a of a fifty three year old man. Mm. I'm fifty six, coming on fifty seven. Uh, uh, Smith's chemist and the doctor recently done a free uh, test for anybody in the area. Uh, I went myself and my wife went one Saturday afternoon. Uh, I went in and I didn't know what to expect. I walked to the door. I, I, could, I could barely get out the door because my head was that big. They told me I had a metal body, body of a 41-year-old man. Really? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in fairness, yeah. and they always maintain too, it's, it's the type of person you spend your life with. My wife is the exact same age as me, 56 mm. years of age, and she walked out with a 41-year-old body as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spoke to a local... The Taoiseach is a, a fit guy as well, isn't he? I mean, he runs marathons and all that sort of stuff. Well, in fairness, I, I give him 10 out of 10. He's, he's the best mm. person I've come across on social media. I don't know how he does everything because he seems to be involved in everything. As, and listen, and I'm not trying to scare him. Mm. There's a TD in, in the area at the moment and uh, I, spoke to, I spoke to that person recently and uh, he's 61 years of age. He then got the same test done as I did and he walked out and they told him he had a body of an 85-year-old person, oh, you know. God, right. like, I'm, I'm, what I'm just trying to say, Michael, is these are wake-up calls. Mm. And, and, like, it's a lifestyle. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying because I'm a TD and that there and we do work at regular hours. But it's like everything else is. Like... Uh, I, I, we have a busy three days with mm. the next three days in the doll. I hope I'm not going to get complaints of local 61-year-old TDs though, am I? <laughs> no, no, this, 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 yeah, this, I can see everybody at home now thinking, who's 61? <laughs> <laughs> no, Michael, but, it, but it, like, it's, it's a governing edge. Like, mm. I, when I'm driving my car, say, coming up to draw it up to LMFM today, yeah. and if I see people walk and I see mm. people jogging and I see people in exercise, I've not been admiration for them. Because, mm. mm. Michael, there is an epidemic out there of, of obesity and it's, it's, it's a lifestyle and it's something that we can... We can do something ourselves. But if people aren't using the gym, and I suppose this is uh, the question that this story in the mirror has raised for people, if people aren't using the gym, what's the point in having it there? Well, Michael, I think uh, in 2018, approximately about 5,000 people used the gym. Mm. And I think maybe about 60% of them there are either TD or, or Rogdus. Now, if you look up there in the gym, you've got an awful lot of uh, administrators up there in the gym. I think there's, there's hundreds of people walk mm. up there in the Rogdus. And in fairness, you've got the, you've got the clerks, you've got the ushers, yeah. you've got the porters. And in fairness, even the journalists now can mm. use the gym there at the moment. But I, I think it was just 8% yeah. of yeah. the people who used the gym yeah. that were politicians. Yeah, well, mm. I, the, the, the gym was put there in 2005. Uh, I don't think they spent much money since 2000. 
2005. I think now, I, I, according to the papers, they're, mm. they're talking about spending nearly 100 grand in gym equipment. Like, I'm, I'm looking at myself there. It's, it's a 60 square metres uh, uh, room. And I'm saying to myself, it's 100,000. How did mm. you spend 100,000 in there on a few treadmills and, mm. and row machines? Mm. They, to me, it makes no sense. Mm. I'm a member... Government the, money. Yeah. Well, I'm a member... <laughs> well, Michael, I'll be honest you, I'm a member yeah. of, of Fella mm. in the dark. Mm. I go to Fella maybe two or three times a week. I pay me membership. Mm. I have no problem whatsoever... If 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 you just turn around and charge TDs or centers for using using facilities, like as I said here, uh, in in Leinster House, there's no facilities for show or changing. Uh, most of the time, when I go to to Kildare House where the gym mm-hmm. is, uh, I I really only use the the the, the, the washroom and the showers and that there because uh, I'm an outdoor person. I'd rather go out for a run. Uh, the Rockers have a deal there with Trinity College mm-hmm. that you can go across and you can use the grounds of Trinity College. You can run around the running track or you can run around the uh, to the conference. I think that's a fantastic facility. Right. I just like being outdoor, but I think mm. I, I said the idea is. And you take time out from the Oireachtas and go to Trinity for a run, would you? Yeah, but what, yeah. what I'm saying, mm. Michael, is uh, uh, what happens there is I said the idea. Uh, uh, the just have SOS, mm. which means you get a lunch break. Mm. As I said the idea, most of my lunch breaks, uh, if, if, if I do have time, I will go for a run. Yeah. If I don't have time, I won't go for a run. Mm. But I'm just going to say the it's my choice. As I said, for example, it's like I went for a run this morning at six o'clock because mm. we have a busy schedule over the next two or three days. Is, is the weather a factor for you? Because some people would say that's the case for providing a, a gym, that it's raining and that you well, would be more inclined to go into a gym than go out running. Well, uh, to be honest, the only time I really would use a gym as such if it was frosty or snowy, that mm. that it'd be very dangerous uh, conditions for uh, running. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, like, when I used to play football, I used to love the rain and, and uh, the weather doesn't really bother, but it really affect me because I'm, I'm an outdoor person. Mm. But I, 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 I wouldn't chance going out now in the frost or the snow that would, I think it would be a bit dangerous. But listen, as I said to you, the facilities are there. Mm. The TDs and centres have no problem paying their way there at the moment. Is. As I said to you, last year I think it cost uh, 50000 to run the gym. Uh, there's two part-time mm-hmm. staff there at the moment. Is, and they do give excellent advice there for people as well because people go into the gym and like all different shapes and sizes. And like, Some people can use the row machines. Some people can use mm-hmm. the... Uh, the treadmill and these these two part time uh, people would give advice and to be honest with you, I think it's very shameful that a, a lot of our TDs and centres don't use it there because like you know like the the, the dogs sitting tonight at half past mm. eleven uh, uh, the gym's open between uh, tonight the evening from half past seven to half past nine and a lot of them would have an opportunity to go over and, and use the gym mm. and, and you know get themselves well, you, you'd keep the gym encourage people to use it uh, and continue to fund it at 50000 a year. Michael, what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say to you, Michael, is uh, I would encourage TDs and centres to use yep. gym. And uh, as I said earlier on, is I don't have a problem because mm-hmm. I pay me membership in my local gym and dog. I don't, have a, I, 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 don't have a, I don't have a problem. TDs and senators and uh, and maybe journalists and members of the of mm-hmm. office would have no problem whatsoever of funding their own gym. All right. Listen, thank you for coming into us uh, this morning. Independent TD in Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul publishes a new report today entitled Working, Parenting and Struggling. Caroline Fay, Head of Social Justice with Vincent de Paul, is on the line. Good morning, Caroline, and thanks for joining us. Uh, why is it that working parents are struggling? Well, I suppose it's a combination of things, really. Um, first of all, housing and childcare costs being so high, um, that's going to affect all families. But particularly for lone parent families, what we saw since 2012 was a reduction in income support through the one parent family payment and a number of cuts that happened during the years of austerity. And we're now kind of reaping the rewards, if you like, of that, where people who are in employment are now um, struggling to make ends meet much more so than they would have been in the past. 
And 58% of lone parents uh, were working uh, compared to 46% in 2012. Yeah, so what we've seen is an increase in uh, lone parents in employment and particularly in full-time employment, which I suppose were the aims of the the reforms to the social welfare payments. The idea was to move lone parents into full-time employment. Um, and But a trend I suppose that we're quite concerned about is, you know, while employment rates are increasing, and that can mm. be a positive thing, are people struggling to make ends meet now in work? And what we're finding is that that has increased um, a huge amount over the last number of years. And that's what we're really concerned about. And this case is made by comparing the parents who are lone parents and working with children under the age of 12 to those who have children over the age of 12. Well, really, I suppose there's kind of two things. We're looking back in time. So we're looking at 2012 and comparing it with now. Um, but as well, we're looking at, you know, the childcare needs of, of lone parents. So what we find is that as childcare needs kind of reduce as children get older, um, more lone parents take up employment. And for, I suppose, there's two things to say that that one is maybe the childcare costs have reduced, which is a positive thing. I suppose as the children get older, you might be spending less on, on childcare. But what a number of our members would actually say to us is that when they are working with um families living in disadvantaged areas, sometimes the parents are very concerned as well about leaving their kind of young teenagers, the 12, 13, 14-year-olds, mm. um, unsupervised after school and that kind of thing. If you're living in an area where there can be, um, you know, antisocial behaviour and things like that, parents will be quite concerned about that. So it's kind of a different problem. It's not the cost of childcare, but it's, you know, it's another issue as well that's facing people. So really, I mean, for lone parents, there's a, a number of things going on there. Firstly, they're the main carer and the main earner for the family. And that's a huge um, strain to put on anyone. Um, you know, if you think of a two-parent family where you might be able to, first of all, share the cost of childcare and share the cost of housing. If you're parenting on your own, generally you're meeting those costs by yourself. Um, as well as that, then, if you're parenting alone, you're doing the drop-off, you're doing the pick-up, mm. you're doing the job in the middle, and you're trying to kind of juggle all those things in the air. And for lone parents, particularly if they don't have, you know, maybe good support from the other parent of their children, or if they don't have good support from their own Uh, families they can really really struggle to to kind of balance all that Uh, and those parents meeting the costs if they're able to meet the costs uh, because uh, one in five you suggest are living below the poverty line Mm. what's the consequence of that well i suppose there's a number of things really um first of all they're going to be cutting back on essentials so we know from our work with uh, families who are struggling to get by a lot of the time they'll cut back on food because that's kind of you know the the bill that can maybe be managed a bit easier so rent you know has to be paid um, and that kind of that's not a flexible cost. So people look to cutting back in areas that they can. So food. Parents often go without themselves as well. So they don't replace, you know, their clothing and their footwear. They kind of go around with maybe secondhand clothes, uh, or you know, they don't replace things until they're really, really worn out because they're prioritising the needs of children. And you know, for parents as well uh, who've taken part in previous research with us, you know. The cost of education is a huge thing, and particularly at second level, they'll say, you know, um, if, there's not, if there's not much understanding from the school about the high costs the parents are facing, uh, that can be very difficult. So, you know, they're getting, cost, they're getting bills in now, probably around this time of year for mm-hmm. mock exams and things like that. Um, there'll be kind of school trips and extracurricular activities that people really struggle to afford. Okay. Caroline, we have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Caroline Fahey, Head of Social Justice with St. Vincent de Paul. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Liam Hennessy of Slane Station joins us for the report this week, and we begin with uh, the shooting that occurred at the M1 retail park in Drogheda last Tuesday. 
At 2.45pm last Tuesday, the 26th of February, a shooting incident occurred at the M1 retail park in Drogheda. Shots were fired at a parked white Opel Astra car with a 12LH registration plate. The shots were fired by the culprit from a black Volkswagen Passat with a 132D registration plate. My colleagues in Drogheda wish to speak with anyone who witnessed this shooting or observed any other suspicious activity by, by vehicles or people in the area of the retail park at this time. This black Volkswagen Passat then left the scene of the shooting at speed. It was later found at Seapoint, Termenfecken at approximately 7pm. The car had been burnt out at this stage. On the day in question, it was a fine sunny day and somebody may have witnessed this car going to or coming from Seapoint Golf Club or the Pitch and Putt Club on this minor road between 2.45pm and 7pm last Tuesday. And finally, if anybody saw this vehicle on the day in question, Tuesday the 26th of February, travelling between the scene of the shooting at the M1 Retail Park and Seapoint in Termenfecken, or indeed travelled between these two locations with the dash cam fitted to their car, I, um, I would ask that they make contact with the Gardaí at Drogheda Garda station. And finally, I would just say the most probable route taken would be to travel north from Drogheda, up Killineer Hill and turning right at the Papal Cross. We'll stay in Drogheda and uh, the theft of a vehicle. This occurred in Hardiman's Gardens uh, again last Tuesday. On Thursday last, the on Thursday, I beg your pardon. On Thursday last, the twenty eighth of February, a white Volkswagen Transporter van was broken into in the Hardiman's Gardens area of Drogheda. This occurred at around twelve midday. The lock on this van was damaged, and a large quantity of industrial tools were taken from it. The majority of these tools were drills made by Makita, and the Gardaí at Drogheda wish to speak with anyone who witnessed anything unusual in the area at this time and date, or indeed have been offered these tools for sale since this crime occurred. Okay, and uh, we stay in Drogheda Pierce Park, uh, where uh, bookmaker's shop was uh, the subject of a robbery. Indeed, there was a robbery at a betting shop in Pierce Park on Saturday the 2nd of March. A lone man entered the shop at about 20 past 8 in the evening. He threatened a member of staff in the shop and attempted to get behind the counter. He stole a sum of cash from the shop, and this was a very frightening ordeal for the member of staff involved, and if anyone has any information or noticed anything suspicious in the area, at this time, I will ask they contact my colleagues at Drogheda Garda Station. OK, we've a, a robbery at a, a garage, a Maxall filling station to report on next. On Saturday evening last, the 2nd of March, at 10pm, a robbery took place at a filling station on the Dunor Road in Drogheda. A lone raider wearing a balaclava entered the shop and threatened a member of staff with a knife. He then escaped with a sum of money by reaching over the counter and taking the cash. This was again very traumatic for the member of staff involved, and my colleagues in Drogheda are very anxious to speak with anyone who saw anything unusual or suspicious on the Dunor Road in Drogheda at this time. And we go to Dunlear uh, and uh, break into a school that uh, occurred yesterday, was it? It's actually on. It's a house on School Lane, Michael. Oh, I um, beg your pardon. Mm-hmm. Shortly after 2am yesterday morning, the 4th of March, a car was stolen during the course of a burglary at School Lane, Dunlear, County Louth. This car, a white Volkswagen estate, was recovered later that day by the Guardian Clondalkin in Dublin. The front door of the house was damaged during the course of this burglary and the Guardian at Dunleo Garda Station, wished to speak with anyone who saw anything unusual in the school lane area of Dunleo in the early hours of yesterday morning. 
next, uh, we've uh, some money to report stolen uh, from uh, financial institutions, or at least the money was withdrawn from finan- financial institutions. Yes, there, there have been two separate incidents in Loud and Mead in the last two weeks where injured parties involved have withdrawn sums of money from financial institutions and have apparently been followed after these withdrawals by people who have stolen this money from them. We are asking the public to be extra vigilant when moving sums of money and to be aware of your surroundings before carrying out transactions like these. People should be aware of people and cars around them at these times. Uh, another robbery to report on from a filling station, uh, this one on the Kentstown Road in Avon. A robbery took place at a filling station on the Kentstown Road shortly after 9.30pm last Saturday evening, the 2nd of March. A man entered the shop wearing a grey top, black bottoms and a dark green balaclava. This man had a knife and threatened members of staff by walking behind the counter to the till before making good his escape with a sum of money and a small quantity of cigarettes. My colleagues at Navangarda Station wish to speak with anyone who can assist them in solving this very serious crime. Okay, we're coming into the lambing season and we'll conclude with a message which I'm sure the IFA and other farmers will be happy to hear on Garda Síochána issue. We would like to remind dog owners of the responsibilities in relation to their control. This is uh, as the sheep farmers begin the lambing season, which can be a time when dog attacks are on the increase. And proper control of dogs greatly reduces the risk of these attacks occurring, and we would ask dog owners to keep their dogs under proper control. All right. Thank you indeed, uh, Garda Liam Hennessy of Slane Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. And that brings our programme today to its conclusion because our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon if you would like to listen back. Before we go, our thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Marie in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9 a.m right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.